Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 10th of January 2020. I'm Jeremy Beck. Joining me today is Citizens Party National Management Committee member Sleeman Johanna. Welcome Sleeman. Thanks Jeremy. On today's show, why are we potentially moving towards World War III? And bushfire crisis, failed fire management policy must end. Firstly, why are we potentially moving towards World War III? Well, we're certainly seeing some really very concerning moves right now with the assassination of Qasem Soleimani and Iraqi military official Abu Mahdi. And we've seen counter-strikes by Iran and they've stru struck military bases in Iraq. Uh, and this is really a big concern because it may lead to an escalation of tensions, particularly when you consider the, the history of going back to World War I, how that started with the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. And these things can get, really get out of control very, very fast. Uh, so, Sleeman, you have a lot of insight into this, don't you? So, you're originally from Iraq? No, yes, I am originally from Iraq. Mm -hmm. Can so, you provide some insight into the history of this and why is this happening and why is the Middle East targeted? Well, I would like to start uh, with a bit of background uh, on this. Uh, if you look at the history of the region, which is Middle East, uh, we have over a century of uh, wars and geopolitical games of destabilization, you know, using various um, reasons or weakness. Um, I mean, if you look at that history of over 100 years, is you've got the Ottoman were there for a couple of centuries, then you have the British Empire, you know, beginning of 19th century, then you have today the American and the British again, uh, in that region. So, you know, uh, the question is why? Why is such focus on that region in particular? So if you want to, uh, in my opinion, if you want to prevent uh, a peaceful world, then you will target that region because uh, there's a, a reason behind that. And who's targeting it, Sleeman? Well, you know, the interest uh, which they want to prevent a peaceful world and a cooperation among nation-state, which is, you know, specifically here, we're talking about America, Russia and China and India as well. So, uh, you know, this region is a crossroad between Asia and Africa and Europe. And throughout history we've saw, you know, that geopolitical game of preventing nation-state from cooperation together uh, and, and the issue uh, definitely is not uh, Iran or Iraq or Syria or even Libya and Yemen, but the, uh, rather the real issue, the strategic issue is uh, Russia, targeting Russia and China to prevent any potential cooperation, as I mentioned, between nation states, which is the Western world and uh, these major powers in Asia. And it's the One Belt, One Road to China's program of infrastructure development, isn't it, Sleeman, that the West sees as a threat to that hegemony. And if, if you want to target China and you want to target Russia, you've got to create all these destabilizations in the Middle East. Well, um, the game is, you know, the geopolitical game is always 
uh, on the surface is few minor uh, issues uh, as a pretext for something bigger than that. And if you look at today's uh, Western uh, financial and economic system, um, we are witnessing a, a, a dying system uh, in many ways. And, um, uh, you know, there's a new system is emerging to replace this dying system, which is, uh, is led by China specifically and Russia and many other nations is part of this one, one Belt, One Road initiative, which is a, a win-win policy for everyone, which is a cooperation on economic uh, level and financial level. And through that mean, you can achieve a peaceful world. You know, it's, 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 we've seen it, we've got to learn from history that uh, we've been, uh, as a whole, we've been a victim of this uh, targeting of that region, which is, it's not just that region. Sometimes you see North Korea. Uh, lately we saw uh, Venezuela, it was Ukraine. So uh, you've got to understand, you've got to go a bit deeper. And if we start uh, believing the media and uh, so-called intelligence report, then we are sleepwalking into a World War III. Mm -hmm. uh, a, as you mentioned at the start, you know, in 1914, uh, the assassination of uh, Archduke of Austria, there was after that a, a retaliation, kind of retaliation, then things got out of control. And if the world knew that we would have ended up in World War I with millions of casualties and destruction uh, the world would have not tolerated that. So today we are on the verge of something bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, could drag these superpowers, Russia, China, into that because the lesson of the last 20 years, we have to learn from that lesson, which is illegal wars, you know, started with Iraq, then Libya, mm -hmm. and then you have uh, Syria, and then you have Yemen, which has been forgotten. Uh, and this is all a time bombs to uh, bring the world on the brink of a, a war which is going to be unlike any other wars in history of humanity because we have a, a potential today in the world to destroy this planet. So and nu nuclear know. weapons, this is extremely dangerous. But also, if you look at the, the use of terrorism and the use of Islamic State, for example, where this has been used to target the Middle East. I know uh, President Trump mentioned this in his campaign rallies. Uh, of actually who created ISIS, Islamic State, who created it? Let's go to this clip. ISIS is honoring President Obama. He is the founder of ISIS. He's the founder of ISIS, okay? He's the founder. He founded ISIS. And I would say the co-founder would be crooked Hillary Clinton. Co-founder, Crooked Hillary Clinton. So President Trump has just said that Obama and Hillary Clinton have created Islamic State. Now, this is, this is actually true. Uh, they did. But why would now Trump assassinate two of the leading generals who have been fighting Islamic State? Well, Jeremy, uh, I would like to come to early campaign to become president. You know, Donald Trump was vehemently against a war, a permanent war agenda, and he stated that few times that if Hillary win, it's going to be world war. So, uh, I mean, I'm not saying Trump don't have mistakes or he's a greatest, 
but he's got an impulse of, of uh, preventing this war, and he stated before that he want to pull out of Iraq, Afghanistan. So if you see, this is a, uh, in my belief, it's a regime change uh, against Donald Trump administration because he's got that impulse of cooperating with China, Russia, and remember, the media before Iraq and Libya, they demonize Iraq, Libya, Syrian, you know, uh, demonizing Putin, uh, China bashing, it's all trying to drag the United States into a war which is going to uh, potentially uh, annihilate humanity. So mm. it's, the issue is deeper than just mm. what Trump did, but they are, he don't have many friends in the White House. Everyone is working against his agenda since last four years. He's been coming under attack and impeachment, this escalation is to intimidate the guy to go into war, and that is the great geopolitical game always been conducted in history. So it's not his idea, is it at all? I mean, if you have a look at General Wesley Clark, who said that Iran was on the target list and they wanted to bomb uh, seven countries in five years. I mean, this has been an ongoing agenda. So you, you can well, see this, this is what you say, regime change. Exactly. I mean, who would have thought that an American president going to go to North Korea and shake hands with the president of North Korea and, and Trump has got that impulse, what I'm saying. He, he's, we, we defend Trump not because he's greatest, but he's got that impulse of ending this uh, geopolitical game. And he stated many times, I want to work with Iranian, with everyone. So he's been a target for regime change through a lot of falls, you know, Russiagate, uh, impeachment, and that's what everyone should believe you know that the media has been part of this uh, disaster in the world if it wasn't the media we would have have not uh, seen a iraq war and destruction and millions of illegal immigrants today is floating around the world going to europe going to australia going to everywhere because of these illegal wars if you mm. want to finish this you got to finish this kind of ideology which is pushing for a, a world war that yeah, is basically absolutely i mean we've got all these migrants coming to Australia, don't blame them, blame our policies of joining the Anglo-American war force that's credited destabilisation there. You can read a lot more about this in the Australian Alert Service. Thanks very much, Lehman, for your insights into this. We have to take a break now. Thank you, Jeremy. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. Joining me now is Citizens Party leader Craig Ishwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. It's good to be back for 2020. Another exciting year, I suspect. I'm sure it will be. Now we'll discuss bushfire crisis. Failed fire management policy must end. Clearly, we do have a crisis. There is a lot of talk in the media. We all know about it. We're choking in smoke. It is shocking. Uh, the thing is, there's a lot of misinformed comment. Uh, right now, we know exactly what's going on because we're talking to a lot of veteran firefighters and they continually tell us it's not climate change, it's the fuel load. But, of course, a lot of the media like to make, you know, you know, this is a climate change issue, but really there's no science to back that up at all. So, Craig, um, I know you have a lot of insights on, into the, the Western Australian uh, situation and what good fire management is. Uh, yeah. Can you give us a sense of that? Well, as you said, Jeremy, this is not a climate change issue. Mm -hmm. this is, climate change is being used as an excuse mm for policies that go back 40 years now that have failed, not just fighting fires, but the economy as a whole. So what we're talking about is a much bigger issue. It's actually ideological, right? Mm -hmm. But what I want to give people is a sense of is that this, this with we can create policies to deal with these sorts of problems. 
Now, I was speaking with our State Secretary for Western Australia this morning, Jean Robinson, who lives on the farm, uh, lives on a farm in Kojanov. I mean, and when you live on a farm in Kojanov, a wheat growing area, you, you're subject to fire problems all the time. Now, what she said to me was, Craig, you know, the experts in fighting fires are usually those people that as kids have had to fight fires. And mm -hmm. she fought her, fought her first fire at 10 years of age. And the most efficient method of fighting fires is where you get the local community involved and have them properly resourced to handle their own affairs. Mm -hmm. And she then uh, described to me a situation in WA where fire control and fire pre prevention is actually a very strong policy. Now, in, in 2016, there was a town in uh, West Australia called Yarloop that burnt to the ground. It hasn't been rebuilt. Mm -hmm. People haven't you know, stayed there. They've gone. Um, but in that very same day, there were 17 fires in Jean Shire of Kojanup. Um, which is a neighbouring shire to the Yarloop uh, town. Now, a few years back, the Kojanup Shire decided against joining the centralised proposal for fighting fires, whereby the shires would have to look to Perth 300 kilometres away for permission to fight the fires. In fact, they couldn't put the fires out until they got permission. Mm -hmm. Now, um, instead, Kojanup didn't join that. It mm -hmm. stayed, no, we want to be independent. And it has a very sophisticated, highly organised professional firefighting capacity which is extre extremely well resourced. You know, the Shire is broken up into four sections, with each with fire captains. Every morning at 8am, those fire captains get together and they discuss the day, who's available for fighting fires and what's going to happen if a fire breaks out. So if someone's away, they can deal with that. So that's a real community uh, working on It's designed on, on around the, the community. And, take, yeah. and community taking response for itself, yeah. responsibility for itself. Not some bureaucracy sort of hundreds of kilometres away in some office exactly. that doesn't know what's going on. Now, when those 17 fires broke out, yeah. 16 of them were put out within 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And the other one took 90 minutes to put out because it got into a creek. Now, why mm -hmm. did that happen? Well, all the people in the region, they've got two-way radios, they've got mobile phone apps. And as soon as someone sees smoke, they put out a message, there's smoke. And because all the farmers around mm -hmm. there have large-scale firefighting equipment on their properties, mm -hmm. people descend on that fire and they put it out. They don't wait for Perth. Yeah. <laughs> they don't wait for centralised control to tell them what to do. Yeah. They use your own initiative to do that. The other thing is the fire control in Western Australia. It mm. is compulsory that fire breaks are cut around all the homes, mm -hmm. around all the sheds, mm -hmm. and around all the boundary paddock, mm -hmm. their boundary paddocks. And this is enforced by aerial uh, reconnaissance, mm -hmm. aerial policing. And if people are caught without fire breaks, mm -hmm. they're actually prosecuted. Mm -hmm. So what this does, it allows the firefighters, Jeremy, to concentrate on fighting the fires in places. Uh, uh, that, that need to be fought rather than trying to protect people's homes. Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to point out is that, you know, with good policy, mm -hmm. you can solve this problem. But we haven't had good policy in the last 40 years. Oh, You've a had a problem with, uh, you know, the fact that we've had this fuel load, the yeah, yeah. Uh, build up, and uh, maybe you want to yeah, give yeah, people a sense yeah. of what well, some that, of the other people the thing, have been talking to. The, the fuel load, I mean, when, when um, we, we've spoken to uh, Fred Forrest, who's a veteran firefighter, he's just recently retired uh, from the Mansfield area, mm. uh, and he said, that, look, they used to burn every year, control burns. And that's the thing, if you reduce that fuel load and the control burns, well, you won't have that build up. But we've had experts like uh, David Packham, who, who's a a CSIRO scientist who knows his stuff back to front, he talks about this uh, Byram fire index where you, you look at the number of megawatts of heat output along the fire front. And he says that if, if you have three or four, anything over three or four megawatts per metre of fire front, you're not going to be able to pull it out, put that fire out, no matter how many water bombers you have. 
uh, no matter how, how many fire trucks you have, because the fuel loads build up and up and up, and that's the thing. Now, uh, they used just, to do the burns. Yeah, from what you said before yeah. in your article, Jeremy, it's in the Australian yeah. Alert Service. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about fires that have 70 yeah. megawatts of energy in them. I mean, they're trying to put, you can't put a fire out, it's over three. Yeah. So all the aerial bombers, as you're saying, just can't deal with this stuff because yeah. of the fuel load mm. um, has built up to such a point that it becomes uncontrollable. Well, I, yeah. I also want to make the point, Jeremy, that Fred, uh, Fred said yeah. that 30 years ago you had a forestry industry. There was 28 sawmills in the area. Mm -hmm. You had cattlemen and you had the local forestry. And every year they burnt the forest out, as you said. Yeah. But what would happen is all these people would come together, yeah. the, the, the foresters, the cattlemen, and the community, and they'll literally work together on the right days to put the fires out. Mm -hmm. That's all gone. Yeah. The forestry mm -hmm. has disappeared because the you know, shutdown of the forestry industry. So all the forestry tracks are now growing over again. Mm -hmm. So the resources that are put into fighting fires aren't there anymore. Yeah, that's and right. that's a deliberate policy also um, in, when you come to other areas. Well, deliberate policy. Uh, David Packen, who is an expert in the field, he says, look, nothing to do with climate change. That's nonsense. If you have a look at it, when the Aborigines around, they used to burn regularly. And if, if you go back to you know, 1788, now we have about 10 times as much fuel load. But that's not 10 times the fire danger. That is 100 times the, the, the fire intensity of that fuel load. And that's why we've got the fire crisis. And he said, look, uh, you can burn, control burn throughout the winter. We've had experts who talk, talk about this. Some of the media are covering, covering these experts, not many. But I know on 2GB uh, they covered some experts from the uh, Volunteer Firefighters Association uh, and they were saying, look, you can control burn right through the winters. This idea that uh, you, you can't do that because of the changing seasons is nonsense. A any uh, person on the ground will know that. Uh, you know, look, these issues are crucial. Most of the media aren't even talking about it. And then they use the excuse, oh, no, um, we... We, we can't do these control burns because, oh, they might get out of control. Yeah, occasionally they do. Look, occasionally planes crash, but we don't ban aeroplanes or ban cars. I mean, that's the sort of insanity line we're getting. But the, the track record is proven these control burns do work. But look, we, we're going to take a break, and we'll talk about more on this bushfire crisis after the break. Welcome back to the Citizens Report where we're talking about the bushfire crisis. Just to give you a sense of how serious this is, bushfire expert David Packham, who we talked about before, in his 2015 submission to the Victorian Parliament, he said, the current land management policy and practice puts citizens in peril. Such acts with full knowledge of the consequences could fall within the definition of a crime against humanity and when the next fire disaster occurs, and perhaps thousands die in Victoria, those responsible should be referred to an international court. Now, that is incredibly serious. Uh, now, he's also cited the case of Eltham in Victoria, just in the Melbourne suburbs, where there's trees everywhere. He's saying that thousands could die. Many thousands, they'd be trapped in their cars, they wouldn't, would, they wouldn't be able to get out, they'd, they'd be stuck in traffic jams, and this is a disaster waiting to happen. So. Look, we've got to talk more on really the, the ideological roots behind all this. And I know, Craig, you've got some insights into this. Yeah, right, Jeremy. This, this, people have to understand this, this just hasn't happened. This has been a build-up of a failed policy for the last 40 years. And it comes from the idea that... Uh, it comes from the process that we've talked about many times on this program mm -hmm. where you've seen the, the, the takedown of the Australian economy mm -hmm. in, in real terms, right? Mm -hmm. 
you look at these policies that have come in, which have sold off our industries, that have that have shut down many areas of agriculture, that have, you know, uh, stopped us from building actual real infrastructure. Well, these policies of economic rationalism mm -hmm. is what's caused the problem because now you've had this idea come in, particularly with bushfire management, where you, oh, we haven't got the resources to spend in looking after our forests. Mm -hmm. In other words, it comes down to a money issue, yeah. which you should never do because this is a this the control of fires and forests is actually a soft infrastructure. It, mm. It's a policy where mm. you have to have governments that are prepared to, to support and develop infrastructure, right, like put into place proper policies. Now, look, this is an ideological debate. I can't go through it in great detail, mm -hmm. but if you have a look at the green ideology in particular, this green ideology wasn't, wasn't, wasn't established for the purposes of protecting animals. It was actually completely different. And we go through this in a number of our publications that the, the, the formation of, for example, the World Wildlife Fund and the, inter international, the international Union for the Conservation of Nation, uh, Nature, the formation of the WWF in 1961 by Prince Philip, mm -hmm. Prince Bernard of the Netherlands that was a Nazi, and also Julian Huxley, who was a member of the British Eugenics Society, mm -hmm. shows that the policy formation by the WWF goes right to the heart of the British Crown mm -hmm. with Prince Philip. Now, what's the agenda? The agenda is population reduction, mm -hmm. right? First of all, and also secondly, in terms of national parks, the control of natural resources. Mm -hmm. So Look what you have up. here is an ideological program. Now, this was brought through the, the auspices of the Crown, through institutions like the Mont Pelerin Society into Australia, through policies that meant that you shut down any effective government, that you privatise everything, you sell off uh, necessary resources to private interests to make a buck mm -hmm. and that's what we've got now mm -hmm. because the sort of money the sort of infrastructure you need to fight fires means you have to have a well-resourced forestry industry right throughout the country you have to have the capability for uh, regular burning of the forest as we've mm. said before and it that, does it does cost money but think of the money we've, we've just, just gone up and smoke but think about the, the yeah. 500 million animals that just been destroyed because yeah. of these fires are so hot they can't get away from them yeah, yeah. Right, so our policy is, Jeremy, you have to move away from this entire ideology. You've got to go back to a policy of the common good of the general welfare. Mm. And that's why on this program we talk a lot about the need for Glass-Steagall. Just ask this question. If we're looking at such failed policies in terms of bushfire control, mm -hmm. what are we looking at in the terms of a global financial crisis and how is our government going to control or handle that? They're not. Mm -hmm. Because the same underpinning of ideology... Mm -hmm. of the privatisation, of the sell-off, of the, 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 the interest of putting corporations first, which is in fact fascism, mm -hmm. is going to prevail. Mm -hmm. Now, what we propose is a massive reconstruction development project funded through a national bank. Now, we've written the legislation for a national oh, yeah. bank, which means that you provide vast amounts of credit, not mm -hmm. money, you don't print money, but you provide credit and you put it into those areas that need to have infrastructure rebuilt. Now, we're talking about multiple tens of billions of dollars of infrastructure that's been destroyed by this fire. This is where a national bank would step in and say, OK, we're going to provide credit to local councils. In fact, we've got a local council mm -hmm. division in our bank and we're going to provide the credit, very low, low interest rate credit over a long period of time to rebuild the community because a lot of that infrastructure yeah. is required to be able to rebuild the economy as well. Exactly right, Craig. I think that's all we've got time for, but you can read much more in the Australian Alert Service where we've written a lot about the bushfires. And really, you know, we're at the point now, we must do this or we're going to face a disaster. As David Packen says, we're, we're going to see literally thousands of people die in such a crisis. Thanks for watching.